Once upon a time, more literary heroes pursued virtue, or at least knew that they should. But in more modern stories, the main characters aren't motivated by being good, but by being right. They exchange the truth and law of God for the lie of personal liberation. But in a world of abuse and tyrants, this idea can feel appealing. Yet how does this exchange ultimately make stories worse? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Steamer Burnett, and I publish Lorehaven and am the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am a wretched sinner saved by grace. I'd like to call myself the chief of sinners, but that title was taken. And this is episode 195, Should Stories Minimize Morality to Advance Personal Liberation? And we're going to be joined by Thomas Umstead Jr. in just a minute. Thomas Umstead Jr. wrote a fantastic article at the Steve Lobby Agency website. It is a long one, but there's also an audio version. If you go to the Christian Publishing Show, we will have all those links in our show notes. Uh, Thomas, of course, is the uh, podcast host of both the Christian Publishing Show and the Novel Marketing Podcast, and he does loads of other things as well. We'll get to his bio in just a moment. First of all, a quick mission update at Lorehaven. Guys, we are back to articles. I was editing two articles the other day, and I think they are both coming out the same week as this episode debuts. So you can go to lorehaven.com and find those at the top of the uh, front page there. We're also undergoing our book quest for The Void to the Dawn Treader in the Lorehaven Guild. Subscribe free, and we will let you into said Lorehaven Guild with a special access code. It's our Castle in the Cloud at Discord. Not a lot of people can get to a real-life book club, even if you have some reading resolutions this year. Uh, in that case, a digital book club is your next best option. Just go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe. Look out for our new reviews coming in, too, every Friday. The best Christian-made fantastical novels that we can find. Another really great story coming in is uh, from our top sponsor, Oasis Audio. They have a different uh, sort of uh, product to share today. Uh, sometimes it takes getting out of your comfort zone for God to speak to you. In the case of twins Rona and Flint Thatcher, it takes going back in time for God to get a word in edgewise. When the experimental research of a physicist goes awry, his estranged twin children follow him to medieval Wales where a shattered kingdom forces them to confront their broken relationship. Oasis Audio would like to introduce you to an epic and riveting audio drama, 1232, a time travel medieval fantasy adventure for all ages. 1232 is written by Callie Sue and Cheyenne Bell, produced by Rumble Stump Entertainment, with new episodes out every Wednesday. Travel with Rona and Flint to medieval Wales in the year 1232 AD, where they come face-to-face -face with a brutal world filled with superstition and legends. Will they find the strength to survive a past that has been tainted by the future? 1232 actually launches tomorrow, Wednesday, January 17th. And then new episodes are out every Wednesday on all streaming platforms where podcasts and audiobooks are available. To find where to listen, visit audio-epic.com. That's audio-epic.com. You can also get that link in our show notes for episode 195 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. I hear the telltale sound of a transporter beam, a favorite means of folks entering the studio, so I'm going to go to the control station and energize. Thomas Umstead Jr. built his first website at age 13 and taught his first web design class at only age 16. And since 2009, his websites and resources have helped support authors. 
In 2014, Thomas uh, was marketing director for Enclave Publishing, and in 2015, Thomas became an author himself, publishing the nonfiction book Courtship in Crisis. As a podcaster, he hosts the novel marketing podcast and the Christian publishing show. Thomas still serves as the CEO of Castle Media Group, parent company of Author Media. He lives near Austin, Texas with his beautiful wife and children. Thomas, uh, welcome back uh, to the Lorehaven Studios. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great to see you, Thomas. Yeah, see the show notes for a link to Thomas's uh, previous episodes. Uh, I'm feeling a little hungry this morning, though. It's a bit chilly as we record, even in Central Texas. So let's get out some uh, hot treats here. First of all, this topic is going to be fascinating, and yet it builds on other Fantastical Truth episodes that we recorded. If you hear, by the way, any cultural term in this episode, uh, a broad cultural term, uh, that throws you for a loop and makes you think, wait a minute, like, I didn't know we were going to talk about that stuff. Uh, just know that uh, often these terms are not political. They are actually cultural. They're just often used in political contexts, and often they help serve as handy-dandy nicknames for a series of ideas that affects us all very personally. I'm also aware as we talk about issues of uh, empathy and finding personal liberation in stories rather than, you know, virtue, morality. I think a lot of people do resonate with those themes because they have tragic backstories. There's tyrants, there's abuse that people have in their backgrounds that makes them really want to uh, work some of these issues out with a story. We handled a lot of that stuff uh, last year, actually. We did a series on this podcast called Fantastical Foes, including sentimentalism, sexualityism, and deconstructionism. And we defined all these very carefully. But we prefaced that with an episode about church trauma and how people are led to follow some of these fantastical foes because they have had some serious spiritual abuse from a church or family or religious group. So we won't focus on all that stuff in this episode because it kind of already did in that episode about church trauma. So just go there, click on the link in our show notes uh, if you need to get into more of those ideas. Thomas and Zach, do you have any other uh, sweet hot concessions to share before we begin? Yeah, so I, I would say, first of all, when we talk about morality, uh, we don't mean that as simply a buzzword for certain types of morality. A lot of people say morality and they, and they mean sexual purity, and that's not, we're, we're going much broader than that. We're talking really about virtue. And so the different ways that people try to live a righteous life and, um, and how that's been classically defined. And then we're going to be talking about how that's uh, sort of being redefined in a modern context where it's uh, about identity group membership and conflict. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that more in our, our chapter two. Uh, and we're going to have some really positive examples um, of old and new stories that exemplify virtue. Um, and we think that that is uh, really the key component of the Christian life. You know, obviously we are saved by grace, not by works, but we are saved for the good works God has prepared for us. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Uh, so we're, we're very much a saved by grace podcast. We're not saved by works, uh, but we're also saved to do good works. And that is what we want to see more Christian stories embody. So not just like, here's how to get saved, uh, and, but also not just moralism, not just, oh, just do better. And, and we'll talk about the do better message of a lot of modern stories. But, you know, seriously, though, it, we, are, we are saved in order to be disciples. Uh, Jesus said that, you know, preach the gospel, baptize people, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so we're going to talk about God's commandments in the context of being saved and being Christians, and that we are to become like Christ. And so what does that look like to become like Christ? 
Does it, does it look like the classic stories or does it look like the modern stories that have sort of a different spin on what it means to be a good person? Well, let me go into this excerpt from Thomas's article. This, this is, you know, hot off the presses. Thomas's article came out uh, just a few days ago as we record this. And it's a really catchy title. The key ingredient for timeless Christian storytelling, morality. Uh, so I love just the, the punchy title there, Thomas. And uh, you said in this article, quote, an amoral concept has infected Hollywood screenplays and Christian books alike. Some people call it clinicalism and others call it clinical pluralism. Clinical pluralism is the belief that there is no right or wrong. There's no such thing as evil. There's only trauma. In stories where clinical pluralism is the overarching moral system, villains don't do evil because they're evil. They do evil because they suffered trauma in the past. Clinical pluralism is sometimes connected with the Marxist oppressor, oppressed worldview, where oppressors are evil and the oppressed are good. Marxism is an anti-Christian worldview. In Christianity, there are no oppressors or oppressed, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. It's Galatians 3.28. There are only wretched sinners in need of a savior. The slave needs salvation as much as his master. The oppressed need a savior as much as the oppressors do. Being oppressed doesn't move you one inch closer to the kingdom, and being an oppressor doesn't disqualify you from the love of Christ. Not only is amoral storytelling unchristian, but it is boring and preachy. We live in a broken world. Everyone experiences trauma. When taken to its logical extreme, amoral storytelling causes villains and heroes to become indistinguishable. All right, so to you, our listener, there's a lot going on in that pair of those couple paragraphs. Some terms to define, uh, some some new ideas to explore. So let's get started with chapter one. We first want to go into classic stories that were centered on virtue, on pursuing, attaining virtue. Now, when we say classic, some of these are going to be from only 10 or 15 years ago because our culture is going undergoing a lot of changes and a lot of stories have adopted new worldviews. You know, there's this meme that goes around Twitter at times. It shows like an old blockbuster, an old pizza hut, uh, the two towers, and, and I mean the, the twin towers in New York City, not the Tolkien two towers. It shows pictures like this and it says, the world you grew up in no longer exists. <laughs> I feel it in the air. I smell it in the water. Some of the stories we're going to talk about are, are not only from our childhood, but from our young adulthood. I'm, I'm in my 40s, so I, <laughs> it covers a lot here. But we're also going to talk about more stories from antiquity. So Thomas, let me pitch this to you. What were some of the common themes of classic stories that wanted the characters to find or pursue virtue? Yeah, so the term that I used in my episode is morality, and it ha- and it includes virtue, but it also has to do with the moral system of the world that you're building. So it, this is world building, which is very obvious for fantasy and sci-fi, but it's a form of world building that even a romance author uh, engages in, or you know, contemporary mystery. And it's demonstrated through the consequences of action. So a classic example is uh, often in secular fiction, people will have sex outside of marriage and there are no consequences of that action whatsoever. 
<laughs> right? There's no sexually transmitted diseases. There's no unexpected pregnancies. There's no emotional distress. Uh, there's no, you know, br- uh, making it harder to uh, have a happy relationship later. And by showing no consequences of that action, the message is in the book and embedded in the story that um, sex outside of marriage is not an immoral act, right? So it's it's not just like, oh, I have a character that's pursuing a noble quest or is desiring to be virtuous, although you can do it that way. But it's more of you can have an evil character who is suffering the consequences of his evil and the story is still a moral story because the moral system of the world that the story inhabits is a true moral system, right? Potter doesn't have to get his comeuppance Um, but he can't be shown to be a happy man, right? Like his comeuppance is in how miserable he is and and it's a wonderful life. Potter is evil, but he's not happy, right? It's not causing him joy. He's a miserable and contemptible person. And that alone makes the story a moral story. They don't have to go and beat him up at the end for it to be a moral story. Thomas, one of the best points you made in your articles I felt uh, was the comparison uh, between, um, Certain superheroes, we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, you said more positively, for a superhero story to work, the protagonist must be more than merely super. The protagonist must also be a hero. And I thought that was just a great little parsing out of those two terms put together just last century, superhero. It's not just a person with powers, but a person who uses them for good, a person who uses them not just to find personal fulfillment or uh, liberation from some kind of tyrant somewhere, Uh, but who uses that for the good of the world, for the good of his or her neighbors. And that's something that uh, a lot of people now, at least they think they don't see that in other superhero movies, but we'll get to that in uh, just a moment here. Uh, You also drew out the uh, the Narnia example. I want to get to that in just a moment. Um, That was one of the best uh, reminders for all uh, all the Christian authors who want to be the next C.S. Lewis. You know, well, if you want to do that, then you need C.S. Lewis's morality. And where did he get it? Don't just read Lewis, but read what Lewis was reading. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit, some of the uh, virtues uh, that are found in the struggles of the Narnian heroes? Yeah, what's interesting about the Narnian characters is that they sin. They, they struggle with sin, and even the children struggle with sin. You know, I think Eustace is the most obvious example, but as you start looking at the Narnia books with the moral lens, you realize that almost all of the children are sinners in one way or another, and they grapple with it. And they suffer the consequences of it, sometimes from Aslan himself, right? Aslan attacks Erebus, tearing up her back with his claws, right? That is a view of God that makes us uncomfortable as modern Christians and yet is very compatible with the God that we see in the Bible who gives consequences for sin, (laughs) right? Like we live in a world where good actions have good consequences and bad actions have, have bad consequences. And as you write a story, you can put a lot of a message into a story without being preachy just by having good cause and effect, good action and consequence. And it's important to think about that, but it's also a way of making your characters more interesting. If your character is a sinless character, that is a boring character and an unrealistic character because, I hate to break to you, you're a dirty, rotten sinner too. Your readers are dirty, rotten sinners. We're all dirty, rotten sinners, right? You've sinned. You've sinned. We've all sinned. And it's not a vague, oh, well, I'm a good person, but my ancestors sinned, and that's what Mm, makes me bad. No, you don't blame this on Adam. (laughs) Blame it on your own actions, right? Your own actions bear witness against you. 
and and we're all going to be accountable on the day of judgment for the actions that we do and whether they be good or evil. And while we're saved by grace, we are justified by our works. It says in the Bible, <laughs> James 2.24, you see then how by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Well, similarly, in Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul writes that, yes, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We are saved not just to be free for freedom's own sake, but in order to help others. Uh, that is the cultivation of virtue, which the Christian understands is not just, it's good to be good, so that's why you should, but it is good to be like Christ, because Christ is the best and to be like him, you get close to him. You get the best person, capital P, in the world. And the Narnia fans, of course, see Aslan as representing Christ, not an allegory, but a supposal. And uh, you can actually go back over the struggles of the children. We're actually doing a, a book quest right now through the Voyage of the Don Treader and the Lorehaven Guild. And Eustace is the uh, introductory character there, uh, a cousin of the Pevensey children who has his own little story, and yet it's the Pevensies and Eustace who you could say are victims of various things. In the first book, the Pevensies are effectively war refugees, uh, kind of homeless, at least until they stay in the professor's mansion. Uh, Eustace has been uh, conditioned to be uh, the little uh, bullying tick that he is. And when he ends up in Narnia, um, he gets a very steep learning curve in this world of magic and chivalry. And he has to repent and change and more effectively be changed by Aslan. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Thomas, that Aslan tears into Erebus at one point in The Horse and His Boy. Well, Aslan tears into Dragon Eustace even more deeply. He has to pull off the skin, the dragon skin that Eustace has been changed into. Three times it doesn't work for Eustace to do that to himself. Aslan must undress Eustace and the first tear feels like it's going to kill him. But only then is Eustace undragoned. Only then has he been supernaturally changed from the inside out. It's one of the most beautiful, explicit presentations of redemption in all of the Narniad. And you're talking about trauma. Who suffers more than Diggory? Right? His mother is dying. His father is far away. Might as well not exist. There's no Skype in those days. And he's living with his crazy, abusive uncle and his passive aunt. Right, that's the classic kind of trauma formula. And yet, at no point is that an excuse for his bad behavior. In fact, he still has to justify himself by his works in the end of the story, right? Going on this great and noble and dangerous quest where he faces temptation to try to make up for the harm that he brought to Narnia. And it was his action, not his trauma, that introduced evil into the world of Narnia. Yeah, one could almost imagine a modern retelling of The Magician's Nephew, where Diggory uses the power of the rings and even the white witch, uh, Jadis, to remake his world in, in his image. And, don't uh, do it, Greta Gerwig. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, think already, she will. I'm already calling my shot here. That's probably what we're going to see. But um, I'm not as big of a Tolkien nerd as others, but I, you know, I'm more, more familiar with the movies because I read the book so long ago. But even in, in uh, Lord of the Rings, you've got Aragorn, who's sort of the reluctant king, you know, who's got the rightful uh, place on the throne, and yet he's, he's holding back from it. And then you've got, um, help me out here, Stephen, Theoden, who's, who's the steward, right? The, no, Theoden King is the king of Narnia, uh, oh, as you can guess uh, from uh, the title. Theoden's king, 
Okay, uh, king of Rohan. Let's let's Rohan, get the nerdness here. He's yeah. king of Rohan. It's Denethor, who's king or steward, steward of Gondor. The steward, right. yeah. So you, you've actually, got you've got the steward, steward who is trying to be king. Who the, the steward who doesn't belong on the throne, trying to take. Oh, he's it. A, he's a got, placeholder until yeah. Isildur's heir returns. Correct. And then, then you've got Aragorn, who is the rightful heir, but he's refusing it. And I think that is a good contrast of what we're talking about. It's the people that know the double-edged sword of power and try to resist it that are the the people who should be and <laughs> who should take it but then again there's also the the battle over the ring right there's boromir how boromir and faramir you know have different approaches to the ring and then the heroic actions of, of boromir to protect uh, frodo who's trying to destroy the ring that whole concept seems lost today right it's just about the power but i I do want to focus on the the heroes here here's another hero i want to focus on this this may surprise people i I said that we're going to talk about classic stories meaning maybe from only 10 or 20 years ago and this may seem like a very surprising example but it's the one i know the most it's the walking dead (laughs) first the comic book then the tv show and also a video game Uh, i'm mostly familiar with the show and the video game that the main character is is who it's a sheriff it's rick Right. And he goes up against a series of villains like the governor and Negan, you know, these autocratic, psychotic rulers of these little enclaves. And Rick is always in this internal debate of like, how far should I go to protect the people I'm responsible for? I don't want to become like the governor. I don't want to become Negan. And there are times where he crosses the line. And then he suffers the consequences. And there's also times where he does the right thing and he still suffers. And so the guy can't catch a break, right? Because either he's not doing something amoral and someone takes advantage of that, or he goes too far. And and then he the story punishes him for that. Now, a lot of people have said the Walking Dead is very bleak and nihilistic. And I, I just think that's not a deep enough understanding of it because it very much has consequences for the characters. And there's, there's one particular scene where the heroes have been facing off against this group called Terminus, which are a group of cannibals essentially. And they finally get their comeuppance and, and Rick and the rest of the heroes just obliterate them. And they're almost like, did we just get away with that? Like, should we have done that? And there's not an immediate consequence to it. And that's where I think a lot of people tuned out of like, well, this is just getting extreme. But little by little, their group unravels after that. And this is what I think you're talking about, Thomas, that when you're talking about virtuous characters and stories, we're not saying the characters never do evil, but their, their evil has consequences. <laughs> like their own actions come back to haunt them. And, because, and that is what's true to life, right? If you know, honest and humble people, they mostly think about their own regrets, not the ways they were hurt by others. Now, obviously, we can be very, very badly hurt by others, but you know, your conscience is always going to be pricking you with the things you have done against others to hurt them. And I think that's a more healthy mindset. I I think what uh, when we talk about modern stories in a minute, I I think when the when the internal focus is on the bad things of everyone else, that's just an unhealthy person to be around that's, that's like that. The more healthy way is to like be looking at yourself and saying, man, I really screwed up. I got to do better, <laughs> but, but not just do better. I need to actually pursue righteous things like 
you know, as God outlined in the Ten Commandments, for example. Zach, you say that, and I, I hear, I've got to do better, Senator. <laughs> yes. Thomas, no, you, that's, you, you that's a great that example. <laughs> Compare, you've got to do better, Senator, with the first Avengers film. The first Avengers film is an incredibly moral story. Iron Man is struggling with his own morality and his own sin nature and his selfish desires at war with his desires to do good even at his own harm. As is Black Widow who's dealing with red in her ledger, as is Dr. Banner, who's terrified of the wickedness, the wicked beast that is in him. Like these characters, almost all of them, Fury, right? His, his done these terrible things and made these weapons and he's suffering the consequences of because he didn't trust the Avengers and he made these weapons based off of this evil technology. Now they're not working for him, right? Like the whole story is an exploration of morality and the consequences of morality and sacrifice Compared to, you've got to do better, Senator, where the reason that uh, Captain America uh, has to give the speech, the sermon, the five-minute-long sermon at the end of that, is because they refuse to give any consequences to the terrorist doing evil. (laughs) That's from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier uh, streaming series, by the way, a few years ago. That's right. And, And... the good guys supposedly are the terrorists, right? They, they have the right ideas, but they're going about it in the wrong way. And it's so morally muddled that the story can't communicate the message of the film organically. And so they have to fix it by tacking on a sermon at the end, which is often what happens in Christian fiction, right? You have a, a really shallow theology where as long as you pray a prayer, you can live your life however you want. And then at the end, you have to tack on a sermon because people aren't experiencing the consequences of their actions in a way that feels real or actually conveys the message that the author wanted to convey. In the Do Better Senator you know, that's the story saying to the reader or the viewer, you need to do better. You need to change rather than showing a character change, showing someone be transformed and actually pursue the right thing, or even just in tragically <laughs> and someone dies or, or someone, you know, suffers greatly. I mean, I personally think we, this is a, a little mini rant of mine. I personally think we need more tragedies in our, our, you know, Western canon of, of movies and pop culture and books. Uh, I, I, you look at a lot of Shakespeare plays and he's wrote a lot of tragedies and, and the Greeks, especially, I think it's something we've really lost nowadays. And that's partly why I'm drawn to Chinese science fiction, but this is a whole other topic. And if I could jump on that real quick, it's important to understand what a tragedy is. A tragedy doesn't have to be this bleak Shakespearean. Everyone dies at the end. A tragedy in its core essence is the protagonist doesn't get what he wants. A comedy, the protagonist does get what he wants. And a tragedy is more easily made into a moral message because somebody can want the wrong thing. <laughs> but you were talking about the sermon at the end. We watched Old Yeller last night with my kids. My first time to watch that since I was a kid. And it's interesting because that has a sermon at the end, but it's not the message of the story. The sermon at the end is about grieving and getting over loss. But what's Old Yeller about? Old Yeller is about manhood and what it means to become a man, right? At the beginning of the story, the father goes away to take the cattle to Kansas and he leaves his young teenage son in charge of the family and he's having to hunt and get food and he's learning how to be a man and there's two men that you see in the story. There's the the evil man who's got the daughter and he's rude and he's detestable and then there's the virtuous cowboy who 
owns Old Yeller, but ends up giving him generously to the boys, or tra- swapping him, you know, for a horny toad. And that's the essence of the story, right? What it's like to be a man. And so you can have that sermon at the end, and it doesn't feel inorganic. But if the dad had given a story, a sermon at the end about what it means to be a man, it'd have been too on the nose, and it'd have been a terrible story. <laughs> you wouldn't love Old Yeller. It wouldn't have resonated for generations like it has. But all of the manhood message, which is the core of the story, is all organic to the story. It's in the actions and the consequences and in the characters themselves. And that's what makes it powerful. Yeah. I have one more example before we move to some bad examples here. Wouldn't say necessarily that Harry Potter is a Christian made story, but it is at best Christian adjacent because one of the best voices, surprisingly, you might find when it comes to issues of becoming a hero despite your trauma and trying to pursue some kind of virtue instead of personal liberation is JK Rowling. She understood this, and it is imbued naturally into all of the Harry Potter series, uh, right from the very first book, Philosopher's Stone, in which Harry finally confronts uh, Voldemort at the end, and Voldemort tells him this classic line, which did make it into the movie, there is no good and evil, there is only power, and those too weak to seek it. That's the villain example that Harry shows and tells throughout the rest of the series, Uh, the importance of rejecting this dark magic, of instead embracing the better kind of magic, a magic whose most powerful form is sacrificial love. Harry himself is marked by the scar left on him by his enemy when his mother and father died to save him, but especially his mother. That's the kind of virtue that we're talking about here is ultimately exemplified in the person, the God-man Jesus Christ, who died to save his enemies and make them his friends, uh, which is imitated incidentally by um, Harry's mother and is a spoiler alert, uh, also finally imitated by Harry himself throughout all of the book, you know, when Harry's bending the rules and staying out all night and, you know, costing his house points and all of that stuff that people critique. I think you see by the end then, you know, Harry is dying to self. He is becoming a man. He is obeying Dumbledore and uh, feeding him the terrible drink that brings back all the bad memories, even though Harry doesn't want to, even though it's causing Dumbledore trauma, uh, Dumbledore embraces this and sacrifices himself as well. And then finally Harry does that. So that I think is the fullest, most free expression of virtue that we find. And only the strongest type of person who is imitating Jesus Christ could ever demonstrate this in a story or reality. Yeah, probably my strongest example that I can think of for this section is The Dark Knight with Christian Bale and Heath Ledger. It's often been said that the Batman and Joker have the same tragic backstory, (laughs) but they operate out of it in entirely different ways. And the interesting thing about that movie is how often the Joker brings up his tragic backstory by saying, do you know how I got these scars? Or various tragic backstories. Right. Right. And, and the, the thing that, to understand here is that he's always lying because he's always making up a different story. But the point is he's always talking about his tragic backstory as a way to justify his evil actions and hurting and killing others and using them and terrorizing them. Whereas Bruce Wayne has a very tragic backstory of his own, and he never really talks about it. He thinks about it, and it haunts him, but he's always trying to do the right thing. Even when he maybe goes beyond where he should or crosses some lines, he tries to put in some checks and balances. He creates a surveillance system that auto-destructs, right? But he doesn't go so far as like killing the Joker. Uh, even though he could. A tragic story that I think about all the time, again, from my high school days, was 12 Monkeys. 
where, like you said, Thomas, he doesn't, where the character doesn't get what he wants. And, and frankly, the, the villains kind of win in that one, but it's got its own, uh, you know, message of heroism, even despite that, because the hero knows he's going to basically fail. Uh, he knows it from the very beginning because it's sort of a time loop, like time travel story. But I, I think that's the kind of story that we love is that where people do the right thing, even when it costs them. And when they do the wrong thing, they realize it and they either repent or they suffer. There's a cause and effect. When we lose that cause effect relationship is where I think stories break down. I would expect nothing less from uh, the showrunner of Picard season three, Terry Metalis. Uh, I need to go watch uh, 12 Monkeys at some point. I only hear good things about that. The movie. The movie. Specifically the movie. Got it. Okay. Uh, didn't know there was a movie. We can cut this bit if we want to, or we can keep it in. I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Uh, in other words, you could cull uh, my era just now, which makes me think of our second sponsor, Anthony DeGroot, uh, who wrote a book called The Culling Begins, possibly the next Christian series you could get into. It starts with The Culling Begins, a fictional story about 12 spirit oaks who guard Eden from the great deceiver. Speaking of deception, as we've been doing this episode, but after standing for as long as anyone can remember, the spirit oaks begin to vanish from the world, and two opposing forces begin to clash. The Spirit Oak Chronicles will take you on a journey of faith, courage, and horror, all to save Eden. This is The Calling Begins by Anthony DeGroote. The first installment of The Spirit Oak Chronicles, and it's available in paperback and ebook wherever books are sold. Links, cover, all that good stuff in the show notes for episode 195 or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, are we ready for chapter two, where we get to be yep. a little bit more negative and negative? Okay, yep. let's go. All right. So this chapter is called How Many Modern Stories Promote Liberation, Personal Liberation. And so here's kind of my summary in one sentence, what so many modern stories are about. Discover who you really are by throwing off the shackles of your past to unleash your power. And I'm thinking of a very specific example here, which is Elsa from Frozen, to quote her famous song, no right or wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Oh, we actually have an article coming up about that, about the ending of Frozen 2, which, spoiler alert, you will never, ever guess the source of the mysterious <laughs> voice that Elsa has been chasing off into the wilds of Arendelle. It turns herself. out that all along, she was the one she was waiting <laughs> for, so she gets to vote for somebody and save the world and find personal fulfillment. Yeah. Now, by the way, I uh, apologize to my kids who sometimes listen to my podcast because they just performed in Frozen the musical and they did fantastic. <laughs> and Frozen, to its credit, there are consequences of Elsa's, uh, you know, freeze disaster. And the story is resolved by self-sacrificial yeah. love. It's still yes. Christian adjacent there. Yes. But it's almost like that was the bridge, I feel like, into a lot of stories where there aren't those consequences. And that is the point. The point is for that character to break free and discover their true identity, which gets into some Gnosticism. But the reason that these stories are so concerning is because liberationism is directly opposed to saviorism. And that, that is a direct quote, by the way, from one of the thought leaders of this movement. I'm not going to get into that, but that is very much the underlying message is that you have to rescue yourself you have to save yourself. Don't wait for a savior or a hero. I mean, okay, be the hero you want to be, sure. But the idea that you have to break free, well, break free from what? 
break free from the identity groups that oppressed you because you belong to an identity group that is a permanent victim class. And so we need to remake society into a sort of aristocracy based on your intersectional identity, what victim class you are combined with what other victim group you're in. And, you know, this is a very different way of reordering society and, and, you know, calling, uh, redefining virtue, I guess, or redefining morality. And the reason I want to zero in on these ideas is because Jesus told us, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And so much of what this cultural revolution and the stories that it inspires, it really, really boils down to envy. It boils down to, I had a tragic backstory, therefore I deserve better. And I'm going to take it from other people, whatever it costs. And we'll get into some examples here, but uh, even Christian fiction can fall in this trap and we'll talk about that in a minute and that can get uncomfortable. (laughs) Don't worry. We're not going to name names, but just talk about trends yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Zach, you talked specifically about the the top, you know, the bigger picture of this. I'm interested Mm -hmm. from any of us, like, how does this look at the individual level? Like Thomas uh, wrote, uh, you know, more about the, the level of a fiction and how people will respond to this as individuals to the fiction. So uh, unless you want to go in another direction, I'm curious, like Thomas, like what maybe general trends have you seen in terms of the response of readers resonating with these ideas in modern fiction of find your liberation with an identity group and thereby ignore or even get vengeance against the oppressors now being the, uh, the swapped in virtue du jour. So Readers and filmmakers, many of them don't resonate with these new kinds of stories. Somebody hasn't been taught in school a sufficient amount of intersectionalism. The the story doesn't resonate. It, it also doesn't work as well around the world because this kind of thinking is very kind of Western urban center centric. And so the farther away you are from urban centers and the farther away you are from the West, the less the story resonates. Whereas morality and deeply moral stories resonate in every culture, right? Because we have the law written on our hearts. Our conscience is bearing witness. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone can relate to a moral story. And I have a conspiracy theory that the decline of Marvel is directly connected with the death of Stan Lee. Because it was once Stan Lee died that the heroes went away. That's a good point. So Stan Lee used to have a, um, a TV show called Who Wants to Be a Superhero? It was a reality TV show where he took regular people and he taught them about heroism, about self-sacrifice, about that it's more than just power. It's about being a good person, a virtuous, Not just great power, but great responsibility, in other words. (laughs) Exactly, which was the core ethos of Stan Lee. And he was this advocate for heroism, right? This is why he was creating these characters like Captain America 80 years ago. And once he stopped giving notes on the scripts, you know, who replaced him, right? It's probably some person who believes in this clinical pluralism where there's no real evil. There's no you know, right or wrong. It's just trauma, right? Thanos is a traumatized person because his, his planet suffered and died because no one had the will to act. And so he learned to have the will to act. So is he evil, right? Like suddenly Marvel's not sure, right? And you're constantly seeing Thanos was right, scrawled on walls <laughs> and graffiti and, and bathrooms, right? Because now there's no longer the moral clarity to say that Thanos was right or wrong. And this has become such a problem that in urban centers uh, in the West, people no longer have the moral clarity to say that genociding the Jews is wrong. <laughs> mm. 
Mm. Like that should be the easiest thing for us in the West to say, oh yeah, this is obviously evil, right? Hamas having its goal to be the eradication of Jews from their only nation. That's evil. That's wrong. We should be able to clearly state that's wrong. That's what the Nazis were doing. That was Hitler's goal. And Hitler was evil. Like, this isn't a moral stretch, right? This isn't going out on some limb. And yet, we suddenly are confused. And I think part of that confusion is a result of the moral, uh, as a result of the lack of moral clarity in the fiction that we're consuming. Mm. On screen especially, but also in books, right? A lot of Christian books no longer have clear morality. Or if they do... It's identity-based morality, where the Christians are good mm-hmm. and the non-Christians are evil, yeah. which is no different than saying right. the intersectional person is good because they're oppressed and the oppressors are evil. It's like, that's not how morality works. <laughs> you, what makes you good or evil is the actions that you do. Your actions matter. It's not about your identity. It's about what you do in the body and whether it be good or evil. That's what you're judged on. You're not judged on your identity, but God will judge you for your actions. And that should put the fear of God in all of us because we are justified by our works. (laughs) Yeah. And I I thought that's where you had a good example in your article about Captain Marvel. And I want to actually contrast Captain Marvel with Black Widow. So Captain Marvel, uh, a guy tells her to smile. She doesn't like that. And she beats him up and steals his motorcycle. And then no consequence free, right? Because she's slighted by that. Black Widow has a lot of, you know, men leering at her and, you know, hurting her and whatnot. But what is she most focused on? Her ledger. She says, there's too much red in my ledger. Too many people she has hurt. Too many people that have died because of actions she's taken. And she's trying to balance her own ledger. And again, compare that to Thanos. What's he trying to do? Balance the universe by killing half of all life. Like, that's just so bizarre. Like, how does that solve anything? You, why don't you just use your gauntlet to create twice as many planets, Thanos? Like, <laughs> it's that Malthusian, you know, mindset of, oh, there's too many people, not enough resources. We got to just kill a bunch of people. But that difference of Captain Marvel in Black Buddha is so stark to me, the more I think about it, because one is concerned about their own actions and the other is entirely focused on the wrongs of other people. It's, you know... I can do whatever I want because people have wronged me. I, I think we see this in a lot of other fiction. We were having some discussion uh, internally in Lorehaven and uh, just kind of generally just talk about one or two books that people have mentioned. Uh, there's this trend where you see it in a book or you see it on screen where every representative of group one is evil and can do no right. And then contrast that with every representative of group number two can do no wrong. So there, there's no limit to what group two can do. They can get away with anything. And there's nothing that group one can do to redeem themselves. And they're totally irredeemable. That's not good storytelling. And you're right, Thomas, in that stories do shape our moral sentiments and, and they do cause this moral confusion we're seeing in the real world where, where people don't know who the good guys or bad guys are because they're like, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to classify people by their group identity. And now I'm confused. Is this group, is this group good or is this group bad now? So yeah, it's, and I think that's because we've lost as a culture, we have lost objective morality. We we've really bought into subjective, uh, morality. Nancy Piercy talked about this recently on Twitter that a Christian researcher went to this like, Christian school 
and tried to explain the difference of objective and subjective, right? So like uh, two plus two is four. The sky is blue versus, oh, my lucky number is five or blue is my favorite color, right? So objective versus subjective. And then she asked the class, okay, God exists. Is that objective? Is that an objective statement or a subjective statement? And of this Christian school, 75% said that's subjective, whether or not God exists. And then she got into sexual ethics, which that percentage climbed even higher of people that thought, you know, basically straightforward commands from the Bible about sexual purity and whatnot are subjective. Well, that's, that's a rule for me, but not for others. And boy, that was eye-opening because we're not just talking now about problems in the world. We're talking about problems in the church. And when there's that moral confusion within the church, how are we supposed to create stories that reflect a better worldview? One thing Thomas does in his podcast is help equip authors uh, both to be good marketers and also to be uh, good uh, writers uh, with Christian publishing, which also makes me think of our third sponsor, the I Write How to Write a Novel course from author E.J. Kitchens. Are you looking for a fun yet challenging writing class for your teen or yourself? I Write How to Write a Novel is an online writing course that will teach you how to write novels that your friends and even strangers will want to read how to overcome writer's block and gather ideas, and much more. The mentorship option is also available to go along with the course. I Write is taught by E.J. Kitchens, a professional copy editor, former college lab instructor, and award-nominated author of the Star Clock Chronicles and Magic Collectors books. For more information and to enroll, visit ejkitchens.com courses. You can also find that link in show notes for episode 195 or lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, Thomas, I'm ready for some recovery here, and I want to preface this one real quick. Um, Thomas does a lot of great balance between biblical worldview, especially in the Christian publishing show, uh, and also practical applications. So Thomas, a moment ago, uh, you answered, well, how is this resonating with people? And in short, Thomas, I think your answer was, it's not. Uh, these stories are failing. People are looking for more classic feeling stories, even if they're in newer genres or art forms. So that's what we'll be emphasizing here in uh, chapter three. Yeah. So we're going to talk about better stories that return to classic virtues. So, so newer stories we've seen, uh, genres even that seem to be doing really well as a whole showing this. And, and I'm definitely gonna have to rely on you guys here because the, the examples I, I'm not as familiar with, I mean, I, I know of them. But I don't know the deep lore of some of these. So we're going to be talking about manga and anime, which I'm only really familiar with one or two. Because it's stomping all American comics all at the same time. <laughs> it's incredible. Incredibly. Like the top manga often will outsell all American comics combined. If you go to wow. your local Barnes & Noble, you'll often find that the American comic books, there's like a shelf, maybe two shelves. And you go to the manga section and there's six shelves or eight shelves. And it's because manga often has moral clarity. <laughs> it has a moral system. It may not be a biblical moral system, but it's a moral system as opposed to an amoral system. <laughs> it's like there, you, you have to have something. You have to have a sense of right and wrong if you want your story to resonate, especially across cultures. Okay, so I want, I want to ask you about uh, two uh, stories in particular. Full Metal Alchemist, which as I understand has a portrayal of the seven deadly sins that we see in Scripture. And also Demon Slayer, which 
I mean, it sounds like a, a very uh, tight crossover with the Bible, but a friend of mine said that Demon Slayer has a quote, almost Christ-like figure in it. And he, uh, this is my friend Nicholas, was, was telling me all about this story. So tell me more about those stories and how they portray a better moral system. One of the interesting things about Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is that, yes, the villains are the seven deadly sins. And their portrayal is very fascinating, which makes it very moral. And yet, the core moral thread of that anime or that manga is actually a man against himself, right? These boys are struggling with the sins of their past, and they face the consequences of their sins of their past every episode. And they're looking for redemption, and they're looking for, ultimately, salvation, because one of the boys is damned. Uh, to live in this metal armor because they broke the law. <laughs> they did the one thing they were forbidden from doing and they tried to transmute a human and he almost died because of it and now he's lost his physical body, right? Like he, is, he has been cursed because of his own actions and they are trying to find redemption internally while fighting the seven deadly sins externally, right? Like, most Christians would be afraid to write such a moral story. They'd be like, oh, this, no one would want to watch this or no one would want to read this. This is too Christian. It's too preachy. And yet in Japan, they were able to do it without any sort of self-consciousness. And it became one of the top animes of all time. In fact, the manga was so popular that they made it into an anime, Full Metal Alchemist, but they finished the anime before they finished the manga. And people didn't feel like it was quite good enough and so they made the whole show again. <laughs> wow. So Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is the whole show again, made only like five or ten years later to get it right. That shows you how much demand there was for the story to be portrayed well and how loved it was both in Japan and around the world. That is fascinating. And I like that it's a remake to be more faithful, not less, <laughs> not to go in some weird direction. But to say, hey, we we got to we got to do better. You know, we we need to do better. Um, now, tell me a lot, a little bit about Demon Slayer. I understand that it's a character that. Uh, so the way my friend explained to me was, there's a character who's trying to save like a, his sister or something from a demon who who sort of gets like 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 how a vampire bite can turn you into vampire. Like this other character is sort of becoming a demon, but is able to resist it. And then they're trying to fight other demons while still rescuing her. Is that in, in the, this, uh, this character that becomes a demon slayer is it really goes out on a limb to rescue and save other people. Do I have that about right? Or do you guys want to tell me some more about it? That's about right. But I haven't seen as much of it as Thomas has. I don't think. Oh, I haven't seen demon slayer. Okay. I've seen maybe 10 episodes. I think I, we, we fell off, but it's not demon slayer's fault. It was our fault. I think we got distracted by something <laughs> else, but yeah, you know, that's the basic gist. I mean, it's, it's a young man, a, a shonen, you know, that's literally this is the genre term in Japan, shonen manga or shonen anime. In other words, young man. So you've already got right up front who it's for. Although, you know, women and girls uh, love these kinds of stories as well, but yeah, his sister is attacked by a demon. Uh, and he has to go, you know, that's, that's his inciting incident. He has to go now on a call to adventure, you know, very common shonen tropes. He has to go out in the woods and he needs to find a, a sensei. He needs to train in order to become a demon slayer. 
And so now he's uh, he's kind of wandering, you know, slaying some demons. And it, it's interesting because demon in Japan, at least, it's it's translated as demon. But uh, if I remember right, the actual term is yokai, and it's more like evil spirits, like kind of a little bit closer to fey. But in Demon Slayer, at least, they're they're evil, you know. Whereas in other stories, you know, a, a yokai is just kind of a force of nature. It's a very Eastern way of understanding things. But here. The Judeo-Christian ideas have been kind of superimposed over this. You know, there's no gray areas here. You know, our hero needs to slay the demons. As far as I've seen, uh, maybe it gets into gray areas later. But yeah, Christ-like figure, I I would think so. He's doing all this to try to uh, save his sister. Another example that comes to mind is an anime that I saw. I think it's called Trinity Blood, and it's about a Catholic priest who's fighting vampires. And he's a very Christ-like figure who's sacrificing himself. And it's filled with Christian symbolism and imagery, <laughs> right? It's like, what's the power that defeats these vampires? And when I watch these, I'm like, why aren't we making that kind of mm. media? Why are we so afraid of Christian symbolism and imagery? One of my favorite fictional Christians is Michael from the Dresden series, which is a book not written by Christian. <laughs> but Michael is a good man. He, he loves his family. He loves his wife, and he fights vampires and fae with a sword made from one of the nails of the cross. But what his limitation is, is that he's there to try to save their souls if they're human, right? He, he has to try to share the gospel with them. He can't just go around killing people like Dresden can. <laughs> well, Dresden has limitations too. Um, but <laughs> that, that moral challenge, it makes him a really interesting character. And at one point, in the books, Michael is chiding Dresden for his sexual proclivities. <laughs> it's like, it's great. He, he, and he does it in love. But it's like, why why can't we tell stories like this? <laughs> mm, there you go. Well, we can. And, and some are. And that's what Lorehaven exists to do, is to find these kinds of stories that do yeah. not ignore the reality of trauma and suffering in our world, but use these as a means to greater ends. Uh, getting through the trauma as much as you can, still obviously being affected by this, but becoming a hero, uh, becoming victorious. And of course, in the real world, you know, if you've been through some kind of abuse or suffering, like that's always going to be with you. You know, the thorns and thistles are just as real as the sin that we choose voluntarily. The thorns and thistles are more like the world's or others' response to our sin, and we can't help that, but we are responsible for our own sin. And the best stories show people dealing with those hurts and those sufferings uh, while still trying to be like Christ or like a Christ-like hero. And we see a lot of those in uh, in anime as well as uh, some of the Christian-made stories we're finding. Gentlemen, I got to geek out once again about One Piece, uh, which is uh, moving into its endgame, actually. Uh, Ichiro Oda has been doing this thing since the late 90s. It's a manga. It's an anime. It's movies. It's now a live-action Netflix show. And then we found out a few weeks ago, I don't know how they're going to do this, but they're going to remake the anime again (laughs) the current one is still going it's moving into its uh uh, final stages uh after about 25 years and the one piece has many many solid heroes and the the top one is the captain of the pirates uh, the straw hat pirates monkey d luffy uh his goal is to be king of the pirates and he will give up anything to follow his dream except his friends his found family his crew his nakama uh, and we're finally moving into the uh, the end stage of the story in which Luffy shares that his dream is not just to be king of the pirates, but he has a dream corresponding with that or after that. And I think I know what it is. So I'm going to give a fan theory here. 
I'm pretty sure that his dream is to unite the world, which has been divided into all of these islands by some possibly artificial supernatural means. Uh, and I think that that may be what the title of the show has been about all along. The one piece is said to be the long lost treasure and whoever finds it gets to be king of the pirates. I think he wants to bring all the world back together in one piece. That's a theory. I think I saw the ghost of it somewhere, but I, I think they're pretty strongly hinting at it now, uh, which if true would be even more messianic for this uh, little uh, crazy pirate captain is like a combination between Peter Pan and uh, Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four because he's got stretchy powers. Another really great uh, series that has just taken off has been the manga and anime Spy Family. Uh, this is more comedy. Uh, it's basically a comedy spy thriller uh, drama. Like Japan, th their creators, they just mix and match genres like crazy, which is great. Basically about a super spy in a Cold War type uh, fantasy world. It's very modern feeling uh, who uh, must, for various reasons, uh, adopt a little girl uh, in order to infiltrate a, uh, a high elite uh, prep school in order to get close to the guy he needs to get some papers uh, from or something like that. Uh, the only way to do it is to get into this uh, this boarding school. So he needs to adopt a little girl and then he needs to get married like as soon as possible. But fortunately, unfortunately, the little girl he adopts from an orphanage, he just shows up and picks her up just like that because he's just that good of a spy, uh, turns out to be a secret telepath. And um, his uh, his wife, whom he proposes to while a grenade goes off in the background, uh, she turns out to be an assassin. Uh, and the only one who knows that he's a spy and she's an assassin is the little telepathic girl. So hijinks ensue, but the show just celebrates traditional family values and it almost seems like maybe somebody in a japanese uh, public affairs office or something got to a creator and said you know what uh, we need to encourage uh, more, more of our young men in japan to get married and have families just the show just celebrates these virtues uh, even while it's uh, building up some drama with the secrets people are keeping from each other and and people are flocking to it they love this there's fan art uh, people are loving the traditional family structure and just the absolute wholesomeness of it all uh, I just want to say that that's fascinating to hear because Japan has a very low birth rate right now and a very, uh, and a reluctance among a lot of people just to get married. And so there, you know, that story is trying to almost shape or reshape or rebirth a, you know, a, a classic virtue that they've kind of lost. And so that's, it's interesting to hear how popular that is, even as society is kind of moving away from that there. So that, that's really cool to even just understanding that dynamic. It's something that people can relate to. You can relate to having a family, and that's really important in a story. If you want your story to resonate with readers, to be the story that's easy to sell, you have to write a story that people already want rather than trying to change people into the kind of people who want your book. This is kind of the core ethos of my podcast novel marketing. So a lot of people think that marketing is about changing people. And if they just pay the right marketing person or get the right marketing campaign, they can convince people to like their book. And that's not what marketing is. Marketing is telling people, this is the book you've always been looking for. And people long to see actions have consequences. One of the hottest genres in fiction right now is lit RPG, which is the most explicit genre of actions and consequences ever, <laughs> right? Somebody does some great heroic deed and there's a number value. It's like, you have just leveled up. You're now level 14 and your strength is now 20 or in whatever. And it's very obvious. 
And it's like, oh, you did this bad thing, and now you've got this penalty. And it's literally with numbers. <laughs> and it's like, this genre would not have worked 30 years ago because people weren't so hungry to see consequences. But there's so few consequences for actions in Western storytelling. The protagonist can do whatever he wants and gets very little consequences. The antagonist gets minor consequences at the end of the story, maybe. But even in a lot of like video games, you're encouraged to have mercy on the big bad guy after having milled, killed thousands of his minions. <laughs> it's like, why, why do I have to give mercy to the final guy <laughs> when all of his minions died, right? What makes the big you bad guy worse? are not so different. <laughs> Actually, we're very different. You used all of your foot soldiers as cannon fodder, and I would never for my Nakama. <laughs> But but that phrase, you and I are not so very different, is often exactly the truth, right? If they're both amoral characters fighting for more power, it's just the only difference is who's more successful at this current moment. And that doesn't make them appealing characters. And so the more that we can make our fiction stories true, true to the actual world, and, and the more that we can acknowledge that actual reality exists, that um, non-Christians can do virtuous things. And Christians can do villainous things, right? That that the the moral system, the the absolute moral standard, the Ten Commandments, is true regardless of who your identity is, and and the rest of reality too, right? You have to open your eyes and see nature for for what it is. And the more that your story is true, the more it will resonate not just with readers today here in the United States, but with readers around the world and with readers across time. Because there's no temptation that's not common to man. We're not all that different around the world and throughout time. And the more that we're true to reality, the more our stories will stand that test of time and culture. Yeah, and Thomas, you quoted in your article, First uh, Samuel 24, 13, as the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. And I think, you know, you're kind of invoking Romans 2 there, where Paul says, look, uh, even people that do not have the law show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. We all have that conscience. If, if you're on Twitter for any moment of time and you run across kind of the activist atheists, they'll say things like, oh, well, you don't need Christianity to be moral. And it's like, that's not actually the argument that the Bible makes. The Bible makes the argument that without God, there would be no morality. But because there is morality among people that don't even follow God, and it's pretty similar everywhere else, everywhere around the world, that actually shows that God exists because there is that objective moral standard that we all feel in our conscience, whether or not we know the teachings of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, the gospel. We all have that innate sense of right and wrong. And so we don't necessarily have to have Christian books be about Christian characters. It can be about non-Christian characters who discover these timeless truths. Uh, these, you know, eternal laws and the, you know, you reap what you sow in a very simple sense, but also the, the characters who understand, you know, even some of the finer points. And, you know, we're seeing this in real life right now. We're seeing people like Dr. Jordan Peterson kind of stumble his way towards the truth of Christianity. Like now his daughter has become a Christian. His wife has become a Christian. You know, he seems like really close to it, but he, he is putting together and some, he's not always right, but he's finding a ton of insights about the Christian faith as a non-Christian. And so many people follow him who aren't Christian either, but they're realizing like, wait a minute, the, the Bible has a lot of true things and 
Maybe it would make sense to kind of live according to those rules, even if I don't quite believe it. Um, there's another really high-profile person, um, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who was part of the New Atheist Movement for a while. She came out of Islam, and now she's become a Christian. But you, you might say a cultural Christian, but she's uh, she's she became a Christian because she's like this offers a better resistance to the modern cultural revolution, and it's a better answer than atheism to the trauma I grew up with under Islam. But she's also said, look, I'm, I'm still learning this. I'm going to church every week and I'm still kind of learning what it means to be a Christian. But you know, that, that intuition people have that Christianity is true, that intuition that I can learn from Christian thinkers, Christian civilization and Christian books. That's, that's a really powerful thing that can be featured in our story. And Stephen, we've covered a lot of some great stories in the Lorehaven Guild that I think have shown this sort of process that we're talking about where a character undergoes something traumatic, but that doesn't uh, excuse them to do whatever they want to do. It refines them and they still have to find some virtuous uh, meaning and, and some transcendence and, and take heroic action. So I, I wanted you to comment on a couple of these. So we, we've talked about That Pale Host by L.G. McCary. Lost Bits by Carrie Neitz, and more recently, uh, Koenig's Fire by Mark Schooley, who was on our podcast recently. So can you talk a little bit about those books and how those embody these these ideals that we want to see more of in stories? Well, you just reminded me, we have actually not yet done a book quest for That Pale Host. Oh, uh, that's right. Once some other things get sorted out, I think that would be fascinating to explore. Uh, it's kind of a, a supernatural psychological suspense uh, about a woman who's... Uh, basically being haunted uh, by things, but it's it's not a horror story, a little edge of paranormal there, but it, it's certainly a tale of recovery from abuse and, and, and trauma, uh, a lot of it inspired by um, L.G. McCary's uh, own story, but uh, it takes on a character of its own, uh, and it's a, a woman who's needing to fight for virtue and to fight for recovery, uh, despite uh, this uh, sensation of being haunted, that pale host uh, being a rather uh, phantasmagorical reference there in the title. Koenig's Fire, we just did that book quest. Uh, that, that's an out-of-print book, but we managed to get our hand on a secret black market supply. Uh, it's a, a supernatural thriller, uh, alternate history, uh, almost uh, set in the uh, 1940s a Romanian dark forest where evil na- representatives of nature are rising up against the Nazis, and you have actually a, a, a Nazi a soldier uh, who is a Christian himself, uh, the titular Koenig, uh, who now is being placed in a position of whether to go along with this and just let nature take care of things or whether he himself uh, needs to help save the victims that they've locked up in this in this mine for for torture and execution. And then Lost Bits by Carrie Neitz. So we did that book quest as well uh, a couple of years ago, I think. That is basically a story of a robot who is abandoned by his owner and cast off into a junkyard uh, and he needs to go on a quest to find her again in this world now that's uh, being uh, ruled by technology, uh, kind of a, a robotic uh, dystopian. Really great story, one of my favorites from him. And it's just it's just this robot, you know, he's acting like a human. He's he's doing his duty. Uh, he is pursuing virtue and you know, the good parts of humanity to which he's been exposed. And uh, I, I'd say that every story that we choose for a book quest is going to illustrate these kinds of virtues. Uh, again, not as a simple morality it's good to be good, so that's why you should. But morality as a means to Christ, you know, as a code that you must follow, and for those times that you cannot, which is to say every time, 
look to the one who perfectly kept the law and then died to save those who could not, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is at the back of all of the best Christian-made stories, and one way or another, he is also haunting uh, even anime or manga or any of these other trad-type stories uh, that cannot help but tribute the law that he's baked into his world. Going back to Narnia, one fascinating thing about Narnia, to kind of bring this all around, is that there's only one Christian character in all of Narnia, and it's Frank the Cabbie who you don't see until the second to the last book, if you're doing the true order of the Narnia books. And the true order, I, Selah. <laughs> I will, I'll fight anyone who does chronological order. Um, and, you have my bow. <laughs> so so Frank is, is a Christian, and you see how his Christianity, he's not a good Christian, but you see how what little Christianity he has helps him, right? They're in the total darkness, and he's like, why don't we sing an M, right? Or whatever the accent <laughs> is. And, and it's good, but all the other books which are deeply moral books and deeply Christian books. It's not about Christians. It's about people. And it's really, really easy for us to wear that Christian label the same way the uh, secular world wears their various intersectional identities as a label. And, and all I have to say is, like, you say you're a son of Abraham, that's good, but God can raise sons of Abraham from these very stones, right? Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You did evil things. I never knew you. Our actions matter. The actions of your fictional characters matter. And the more that you make them matter, the more interesting of characters they become because suddenly there's tension because the things that they do affect the next things that they can do <laughs> and they affect all the other people around them. And that's what makes for an exciting story. And that's what makes for a true story because we live in a world where our actions do matter, whether they are good or bad. Amen there, Thomas. So we do not believe in legalism. We also do not believe in cheap grace as Christians. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Uh, your good works must bear out that Jesus was working in you all along. Uh, speaking of good works, uh, Thomas, you got a few to share at the end. We've referred to a couple of your podcasts, but do you have anything else coming up now that we're into a new year that you want to pitch? Uh, any training courses, uh, any other events coming up uh, that you'd want to share with people and links, of course, before we draw to a close with you? So the big thing is my free podcast, Novel Marketing, has got marketing tips and advice every week. And you can find it in the same app you're listening to this podcast in and my other podcast, Christian Publishing Show, which is once a month, uh, which is a little bit more theological and talks more about how to publish, how to write your book. I've interviewed many of the best authors in Christian fiction, and they shared their tips and hard-learned lessons there. Uh, we are doing the book launch blueprint in the spring of 2024, and you can find out about that and everything else I have going on at authormedia.com. All right, Thomas, thanks for beaming in. We'll look forward to uh, energizing you again uh, sometime when we have a really great topic that comes up. But thank you so much for what you do to equip authors and Christians and Christian authors and all the rest of it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, you big sinner. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what a fantastic conversation with Thomas Umstadt. Be sure to check out his podcast and his blogs and resources and even training if you are an author. He has many, many great resources. He did not sponsor this episode or, or pay us to say this. I've known Thomas about eight years, nine years, and I've been following his work for a very long time. He's a great guy and he gives so much amazing information away for free, but be sure to 
pay him too and buy some of his courses if you can. But to you, our listener, to you, uh, everyone that's listening to this, we, whether you're an author or not, we want to talk to you for a moment as fans. Have you ever watched a story where you felt like you just had to feel sorry for the main character and basically give them permission to do whatever they wanted to do? You know, that's the kind of bad story that we're talking about, where uh, a character is more focused on the not just the trauma, but the offenses that they have taken, the slights that have happened against them, all the bad things that other people have done against them, which now gives them the excuse to do whatever it is they want, break free, take power, whatever it is. Have you ever spotted a story that draws you and that weaponizes your empathy against you? Uh, and Or on a positive note, what's a story you've seen where the character is more focused on their own regrets. So offenses or regrets. Those are the two things that we're curious about in stories where that is the main character's focus. So send us a note about these types of stories to podcast at lorehaven.com. We'd love it even if you could contrast two stories that you've read or watched, just like we talked about Black Widow versus Captain Marvel. We'd love to hear your thoughts on stories like this. So send us a note there or... Tag us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, comment on this episode page on lorehaven.com or join the Lorehaven Guild on Discord and talk to us there. Meanwhile, we got a great uh, comment on lorehaven.com about episode 194 from listener Gretchen E.K. Engel. She wrote, my favorite movie was a literal 11th hour pick. My husband, son, and I saw Wonka on New Year's Eve. Fantastic and fantastical. It's closer to the 1970 film and musical perfection. This is a movie I'd watch again. By the way, I am hoping to see Wonka. It was uh, one of those sleeper uh, hits. It kind of started slow, and a lot of people started sneering at them. Uh, But uh, I felt that that movie probably had a chance for success, and it's directed by uh, Paul King, who made the two Paddington movies. So it sounds like it follows in that same traditional morality way that we were talking about earlier uh, rather than having a tragic backstory and a uh, hero who needs to just get power and uh, then stick it to his enemies. Gretchen goes on to say, by the way, this is the best way to celebrate New Year's Eve. Go to the movies and land at home before midnight. My son loves the Sony Spider-Verse movies, and it might be his favorite of 2023. I enjoyed the first one and want to see this one. It's also an example of good diversity casting that, as Zach says, respects the fandom. She also notes, as a quintessential Gen Xer, Sean Astin is always Mikey from the Goonies. And then finally, uh, she comments here on uh, what you were saying, Zach, about Andor, which is a 2022 show, but we still ended up talking about it in our 2023 recap. She says, Mon Mothma was my absolute favorite character in Andor and one of my favorite characters, period. A woman in leadership, but also a wife and mother resonated with me. End quote. Uh, yeah, I still need to see Andor. It sounds like it's one of those stories. Uh, this episode kind of actually follows after that one then where you have a bunch of stories last year that failed because they had so much emphasis on finding power, defeating the system, you know, discovering yourself and, uh, maybe less emphasis on morality, on introspection, on becoming a hero who gets more healing from the trauma rather than having the trauma define their story all along. So I think Thomas is right. Uh, that some stories that emphasize uh, personal liberation seem successful. They've got a lot of people pouring money into them, 
But I think that we're going to see a bust, uh, a bubble bursting like we did with the dot-com burst in the late 90s. Uh, All that investment is not going to work because these stories keep failing, whereas the anime, the manga, all these other stories that keep plugging along, celebrating virtue and the pursuit of righteousness traditionally defined are going to end up being a much more solid uh, conservative investment. And I think that's eventually going to come back. Yeah, what I loved about Mon Mothma is, you know, each of these things that Gretchen points out, she's political leadership, she's a wife, she's a mother, you know, she's focused on her obligations, right? On on the people she's responsible for. And she definitely has her own regrets of decisions that get people hurt, but she's pursuing a noble cause, which is defeating the empire. But she's not forgetting about the people and she's not just making it about her own rise to success or, you know, ascendant power. But I still want to know who the Bothans are, Stephen. Why did those Bothans die? Why does it matter? I hope there'll Why be an so Andor season two. Yeah. <laughs> hope there'll be an Andor season two or three that will explain that mystery. I've always wondered about that. Well, you'd have to give it another title because by that time, Andor, the character, is no longer around if you yeah. saw Rogue One, <laughs> one of the best new Star Wars movies. We love celebrating great stories here, but next on Fantastical Truth, we all love great stories, but here's a question we actually haven't delved into on this podcast, how the fantastical books get made. I'm not talking about the authoring because we're not an author's show, more about the manufacturing of the books. Who takes all of that raw material? polishes the edges and turns that story into a shining jewel fit for print. We're going to explore that magical process, the making of fantastical novels from within and without with our friend, Jamie Foley. She's an indie fantasy author in her own right, but she's also the creative director of Enclave publishing. And she's arriving in the studio next week on fantastical truth. Meanwhile, watch out for those personal liberation traps we see in the epistles that freedom is not for its own sake it's for the sake of becoming like jesus it's for the sake of virtue and virtue is for the sake of him it is about personality not freedom for its own sake and that's what we want to celebrate in the best stories we can find and watch out for maybe the ones that celebrate the wrong kind of power as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth 